the Holy Spirit. This is number four in this series, and it is entitled, Restoring the Image of God in Mankind. Now, before we read from the Holy Scriptures, let us pray. O loving Father, in this presentation, we need the help of the Holy Spirit that we may comprehend just how the image of God can be restored within each of us. Since we live in a world of wickedness, please touch our meager understanding with the mighty power of thy Holy Spirit so that we may more fully understand that the Holy Spirit of the Godhead can do within each of us today. For we ask this in the name of thy dear Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, turn with me to a very heart-touching appeal that is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 7 to 10. In these verses, the Lord is talking about his people, what he can do for them. I am quoting, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. In all their afflictions he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love, and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them, and he carried them all the days of old. Now isn't that a beautiful description of God's care for his people? But listen to this last verse. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them." Unquote. As an introduction to this study, let me state that it is the present-day teaching among most evangelicals, and especially the charismatic movements, that the Holy Spirit did not participate in God's plan of redemption until the day of Pentecost, which took place after the cross of Calvary. But the truth is, since the very day that Adam and Eve sinned, the mighty energies of the Holy Spirit have been working within the hearts of people to restore the image of God in mankind. 
This is clearly implied in Acts of the Apostles, page 53. From the beginning, did you notice that? From the beginning, God has been working by his Holy Spirit through human instrumentalities for the accomplishment of his purpose in behalf of the fallen race." Unquote. And Ellen White also states on page 37 that during the time of the patriarchs, quote, the influence of the Holy Spirit had often been revealed in a marked manner. Unquote. So, in this presentation, we will spend some time to discern how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament period, for it has a historical parallel in the counterpart experience of God's remnant church today. This is why we read in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10:11. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So let us begin by considering good old Enoch. He preached a judgment hour message, just as we are to do today. I'm reading from the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. And then there was Noah. He warned the earth's wicked inhabitants. I'm reading Genesis 6:3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And Jesus compares Noah's day with our time. Matthew 24:37 But as the days of Noah were so shall also the coming of the son of man be We can also learn how the holy spirit was active in the days of Abraham Consider how God made a covenant with him We are told in Romans 4:9 that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Thus, Abraham became the father of all them that believe, Romans 4.11. And why? Because he received the promise of the Spirit through faith, John 8.56. In this covenant, which God made with Abraham, we are actually taken back to the cherubim-guarded gates of Eden. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 370, the covenant of grace 
was first made with man in Eden. To all men this covenant offered pardon. It also promised eternal life on condition of fidelity to God's law. This same covenant was renewed to Abraham. The Lord declared to him, I will establish my covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Unquote. Now, what was the practical aspects of this covenant of grace? It provided that in the death of a substitute there would be an atonement for past sins. In other words, the sinner's sins are paid for by the death of a substitute, meeting the demands of the law. In Romans 6.23, you remember it says, for the wages of sin is death. By this covenant of grace, our sins are placed to the account of Jesus, who lived a perfect life of obedience to the law. So the believer can stand before the divine law without any fear, because the sinner has met the requirements in Jesus Christ, his substitute. Furthermore, and praise God, here is another great divine truth. The sinner can now overcome with the same degree of success as Jesus overcame. How is this possible? Because the pardoned sinner receives a new life, a new nature, Christ's nature. And this is all accomplished through the recreating power of the Holy Spirit. Those who are born again by the Holy Spirit receive the same Spirit which enabled Christ to overcome. Let me repeat that. Those who are born again by the Holy Spirit receive the same Spirit which enabled Christ to overcome. Thus, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey the Ten Commandments as Christ obeyed. This is how God is able to restore in man the image of God through and by the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we should praise God for this wonderful gift. But then don't overlook this important fact. The covenant of grace requires the full agreement of both parties. For God consented to enter this covenant with Abraham after the method of such agreement as was the common practice in Abraham's lifetime. Let me read about this from the Lord's servant to simplify the understanding of this agreement. We read in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 137, that after preparing a sacrifice, Abraham, and I'm quoting, 
reverently pass between the parts of the sacrifice, making a solemn vow to God of perpetual obedience, unquote. And then Ellen White states that God also passed between the parts of the sacrifice. I'm reading on from the same Patriarchs and Prophets, quote, As a pledge of this covenant of God with men, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, symbols of the divine presence, passed between the severed victims, totally consuming them. Unquote. So you see, both parties, God and Abraham, participated in the agreement. Sometime later, Abraham was tested on Mount Moriah to see if he would keep his agreement with God. And it is plain to see that Abraham kept his part of the covenant by his obedience. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 154 and 155. The sacrifice required of Abraham was not alone for his own good. It was also for the instruction of the sinless intelligences of heaven and of other worlds. Heavenly beings were witnesses of the scene as the faith of Abraham and the submission of Isaac was tested. All heaven beheld with wonder and admiration Abraham's unfaltering obedience." Unquote. As time passed on in the Old Testament history, God attempted to teach his children some very deep spiritual lessons. For example, their deliverance from slavery was to typify the Christian's deliverance from sin. The miraculous supply of water and food in the wilderness was to symbolize the spiritual meat and drink of the gospel. We read of this wilderness church in 1 Corinthians 10.4, and I'm quoting, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock in the wilderness prefigured the early reign of the Holy Spirit upon the early Christian church. We also learn from the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary that two streams flowed from the Lord's side, which was to teach us, well, let me read it, Early Writings, page 209. The blood was to wash away the sins those who should believe in his name. And the water was to represent that living water which is obtained from Jesus to give life to the believer. Just as the scripture explains it in 1 John 5, 6, this is he that came by water, meaning baptism, 
and blood, meaning the crucifixion, even Jesus Christ. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Here is a spiritual lesson for our discernment. For God told Moses to speak to the people that as the water flowed out of the rock, so Christ's sacrifice would satisfy the requirements of the law. And the remnant church today may learn many lessons from Israel's wilderness wanderings, from their failures and successes. Ellen White says in 5T, pages 75, 76, and 160, you are following the same path as did ancient Israel. We are repeating the history of that people, unquote. But Israel did not realize that the physical exodus from Egypt also involved a spiritual exodus from sin. Self-sufficient Israelites did not sense their poverty. They slowly learned the impossibility of obedience without the help of the Holy Spirit. When God offered to make them a kingdom, what was their response? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 372, quote, They readily entered into a covenant with God, feeling that they were able to establish their own righteousness. They declared all that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient, Exodus 24, 7. But you know the outcome. In just a few days, they were worshiping the golden calf. Isaiah, the prophet of God, put it in these words, which we read in our opening text, Isaiah 63, 10. They rebelled and vexed his spirit. Their good intentions and solemn vows failed. So God renewed his covenant of grace with them. How did he do this? By his spirit, based upon his promise to help them obey. Perhaps I should explain this in another way. God wants to do for us, by his Holy Spirit, what we cannot do by ourselves without the Holy Spirit. This is the meaning to be found in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. A new heart also will I give you. I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You see, this is how God is able to restore the image of God in us through the Holy Spirit. Tell me, have you ever wondered how God could possibly teach salvation's truth to millions of illiterate 
slaves leaving Egypt? He did this by asking them to build a sanctuary. He proposed object lessons and visual aids that preached the coming of Jesus as the true sacrifice and to teach respect for his divine law. Ellen White makes this very clear in Signs of the Times, April 15, 1875. A special system of rites and ceremonies was established which would secure the remembrance of God among his people and thereby serve as a hedge to guard and protect the Ten Commandments from violation. But today we know and understand that animal sacrifices of themselves, as we read in Hebrews 9, 9, could not make him that did the service perfect. Yet, the Holy Spirit used these methods to stimulate faith in the coming sin-bearer. For instance, the altar of sacrifice emphasized the seriousness of breaking God's law, declaring that death was the penalty of sin. How? For only by the sinner's death or by the substitute's death could the law's demand be satisfied. In fact, the whole sanctuary ritual teaches the principles of obedience and applies to modern Israel today. Think of it. Who would dare to downgrade the gospel by teaching a, quote, love doctrine, unquote, without obedience? Those who are doing so are fighting against God and frustrating the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Signs of the Times article of April 15, 1875, are these words. What is the will of the Father? That we keep his commandments. Christ, to enforce the will of the Father, became the author of the statutes and precepts given through Moses to the people of God. Christians who extol Christ but array themselves against the law governing the Jewish church. Array Christ against Christ. Unquote. And that's some statement, isn't it? The Bible teaches two separate services in the sanctuary, the daily and the yearly. The daily took place in the first apartment, representing the ministry of Christ within the heavenly sanctuary of the gospel dispensation. For when the veil of the earthly temple was rent as Jesus died on the cross, so the earthly daily service came to an end. Then Jesus ascended to heaven 
and began his intercessory ministry as our priest in the first apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. But just as there was a yearly service once a year in the earthly sanctuary on the Day of Atonement, so in 1844 Christ closed his daily ministry and entered the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary where he is now in the most holy. And we are living in the final atonement era just before Christ comes. This is why we so desperately need the Holy Spirit today. Like Israel of old, we need a daily experience in dying to sin, a daily renewal of oneness with God that will prepare us for the Day of Atonement. Remember, in Israel of old, those who were unprepared for the Atonement service were cut off from God. They were severed from Israel. Sin had to be confessed and put away before the Day of Atonement ended. It was an absolute must for all, as it is for us today. And only the Holy Spirit can prepare the individual heart for this final event. As in Israel of old, so it is now. The Holy Spirit is the divine agent who convicts of sin and the need for righteous living in preparation for the judgment to come. As one studies the sanctuary, beginning with the altar of sacrifice, just outside the sanctuary entrance, you discover that this is the place where justification is found, imputing Christ's righteousness to the believer through faith. Next, inside the first apartment of the sanctuary is where the righteousness of sanctification is imparted through faith in Christ. And then, as you come to the Most Holy, it is here on the Day of Atonement that the believer stands before the judgment seat of God as his individual life stands for final review. Only those who have faithfully demonstrated through the power of the Holy Spirit their obedience to God and His commandments will pass the final test. Now that we are living in the day of modern Israel, we are faced with the great day of atonement. In fact, this event is almost finished. We will never stand before God in this final hour without the help of the latter rain of the Holy Spirit. We must be prepared to receive the Holy Spirit now. 
in volume 1, page 619. If God's people make no effort on their part, but wait for the refreshing, they will be found wanting. The refreshing or power of God comes only on those who have prepared themselves for it by doing the work which God bids them, namely, cleansing themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God." How can we reveal Christ's perfection? Over pride and worldliness. No one may expect the Holy Spirit to permanently abide within his heart unless they urgently desire his presence. We must plead for an indwelling now to restore in us the image of God. Listen to this heartfelt pleading by the servant of God in her letter of 139, 1898. I would that we had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this we must have before we can reveal perfection of life and character. I would that each member of the church would open the heart to Jesus saying, Come, heavenly guest, abide with me. Unquote. What an appeal. So what can we learn of the response of ancient Israel? Our text tells us in Isaiah 63.10, they rebelled and vexed the spirit. Strange it may seem, Israel of old always moved in spiritual cycles. When God poured out his blessings, and prospered their activities, then Israel became self-sufficient and they apostatized from obedience to God. But when God brought corrective punishment, they responded and accepted God's way. This was the history of ancient Israel over hundreds and hundreds of years. Stephen summed it all up when he stated in Acts 7.51, Ye stiff-necked, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Time and time again, spirit-filled prophets, mighty in the word and deed, labored in vain, against the spiritual rebellion. Elijah called for a separating message. I'm reading 1 Kings 18.21. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Elijah called for a test of fire. Baal's priests screamed and screeched, 
cutting themselves until the blood gushed out, until there was neither voice nor any answer. Finally, Elijah prayed, and fire fell from a cloudless sky. But let me emphasize, Bible Commentary 2, page 1037, his success was not due to any inherited qualities he possessed, but to the submission of himself to the Holy Spirit. After Mount Carmel's victory, when 850 heathen priests were slain, then Elijah faced his own test of faith. He prayed for rain. But not until he had prayed seven times was his prayer answered. Why didn't God answer at once? For the same reason, he does not always answer our prayers immediately. Let me read it. Bible Commentary 2, page 1035. God does not always answer our prayers the first time we call upon him. For we might take it for granted that we had a right to all the blessings and favors he bestows upon us. You see, we are human like Elijah. We must also learn the lesson of this prophet. Elijah needed to search his own heart. How much? Bible Commentary 1035. Until he was in a condition where he would not take the glory to himself. Notice, before the rain came, he searched his own heart. And I'm reading, till it seemed to him that he was nothing and that God was everything. And when he reached the point of renouncing self, the answer came. Just so today, God will answer those who pray for spiritual reign of the Holy Spirit. But Israel of old paid no attention to God's warnings or restrictions. Even the Babylonian captivity and his miraculous restoration could not get his people to listen to the pleadings of the Holy Spirit. Finally, God called John the Baptist to fill a role greater than any prophet. Ellen White raises the question, what was it that made John so great? I'm reading from Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 447. John closed his mind to the mass of tradition taught by the teachers of the Jewish nation, opening it to the wisdom which cometh down from above. That's something we would do well to think about. Question. In what way did John reveal Elijah's spirit and power? Did John lock and unlock heaven's reign? No, he did not. Did John call fire down from the sky? No, he did not. 
Did John ascend to God in a flaming chariot? No, he did not. And his contemporaries testified, John did no miracles. John 10, 14, 41. So it is clearly to be seen that John was a reformer. Of this, Ellen White states that he gave the people of his generation, and I'm quoting from Desire of Ages, page 100, he gave them a new direction to their thoughts. She continues, such a message must be holy. He must be a temple for the indwelling Spirit of God, unquote. And the physician Luke put it bluntly, Luke 1.15, he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, we as God's last day witnesses for Christ will be just like Elijah and John the Baptist. We will emphasize obedience to the divine law of God. Bible Commentary 4, page 1184. God calls upon his messengers to proclaim his law in the spirit and the power of Elias. John the Baptist called attention to the Ten Commandments. How? With the earnestness that characterized Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist. We are to strive to prepare the way for Christ's second advent, unquote. Therefore, beloved, we must respond to the Spirit's promptings. Volume 8, page 332. Our message must be as direct as was the message of John. In order to give such a message as John gave, we must have a spiritual experience like his. The same work must be wrought in us. Remember, God by his spirit matches men to their task. John never muted his message. He used straight talk to a generation of vipers. When asked, what shall we do? He laid the axe to the root condemning extortion and violence and hard-heartiness. Surely, this wilderness preacher who courageously denounced Herod's unlawful union with Herodias at that time, today, John would surely condemn broken marriage vows, shacking up unmarried people living together. What an abomination. John, who labored to bind the father's hearts to the children which God had given him, would also counsel indulgent parents to plead with today's rebellious youth not to mock God's law, but to obey their parents in the Lord. Like our day, John labored in a time of violence and strife. 
The Desire of Ages, page 104, pictures this, for I read, When the ministry of John began, the nation was in a state of excitement and discontent, verging on revolution. Yet, amid discord and strife, a voice was heard from the wilderness, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Unquote. Repentance always precedes revival and reformation. The scripture tells us those who honestly responded to John's call for repentance were the very ones who accepted Jesus. And those who failed to repent did not accept the preaching of Jesus. Let me read it. Luke seven twenty nine and 30. And all the people that heard him, the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. Now I beg you to notice the connection of John's personal preparation for the infilling of the Holy Spirit with how he lived. Volume 3, page 62. How did he do it? By the simplicity of dress and by his diet, which was purely vegetables. And the scripture tells us also how he refused to indulge in ease and luxuries. This is why God could trust him with his spirit and the power of Elijah. Today, God is calling for modern Elijahs, thousands upon thousands, who will open their hearts to an infilling of the Holy Spirit those who will make the necessary preparations for the latter rain's outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And believe me, friend, God will reach his ultimate goal of restoring the image of God in humanity by and through the Holy Spirit. For God has stated in Numbers 14.21, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. God knows that in these unusual times, the church will be utterly helpless without the Holy Spirit's power to cope with the mounting forces of evil. But friend, praise God, with the omnipotent power of the third person of the Godhead, the church will be victorious. This is why we read in letter 15, 1889, nothing but the baptism of the Holy Spirit can bring up the church to its right position and prepare the people of God for the fast approaching conflict. 
the baptism of the Spirit will take place. Will you share in the unspeakable joys of such an experience? Let us pray. O loving God, enrich our lives now with thy Holy Spirit in repentance and reformation and in the mighty power of divinity that we may overcome sin and be ready for the outpouring of the latter rain. Amen. Thank you.